everybody, and welcome to the History Today podcast. Uh, we're here for episode five, uh, me and my co-host Katie Spinato. Um, hi guys, so today we're just going to be talking about the history of the two-party system in America. Uh, we think it's important to talk about because there are just some things that a lot of people don't know that they should know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has not been the Democrats and the Republicans with a sprinkle of libertarian uh, forever. <laughs> so definitely not so to start off i think we need to go to you know the the first big issue about parties in this country is that they're not constitutional in any sense of the word there's nothing in the constitution that says we have to have parties there's nothing in, that george washington wanted that said we had to have parties uh his um his farewell address uh which has become relatively popular recently because of hamilton where um they read it in, in the show. Uh, he specifically says he does not want parties and he doesn't want foreign meddling, which, of course, is the name of the game for America after he's out. <laughs> so uh, first party that is founded, uh, we have the Federalists, which was founded in 1789. And uh, what's, your, what's your take on the Federalists? you want to start, off, start us off on that? Um, yeah, okay. So... Basically, the Federalist Party um, represents the, it represents the Northeast, I guess, that region. I mean, Um, I I guess at the time it would just be the North, because... Yeah, the North. Yeah. Um, But anyways, they represent the North, um, and their greatest strength was in New England, and the Federalists supported the use of protective tariffs to encourage manufacturers They also supported the assumption of the federal government of responsibility for the state's revolutionary war debts, and they they supported the creation of a national bank and the resumption of um, with commercial ties with England. So those are the types of things that they supported, Um, and so that party was led by Alexander Hamilton and then John Adams. um, John Adams? First, the first John Adams. Okay. Yeah, so the, the, first, the first John Adams, uh, uh, Alexander Hamilton, and um, I think John Jay was part of it. I know he wrote, he, John Jay wrote the Federalist Papers too, but then again, so did Madison. Madison will come later. But uh, I think the other really important thing when we're talking about the leaders is um, that Washington, while he wasn't a fan of parties, was definitely a Federalist. Like he wasn't uh, in name a Federalist. He didn't, wasn't a card-carrying party member, but he had a lot of Federalists in his cabinet. He had, um, he also had Jefferson in his cabinet, but that was kind of the undoing of his cabinet. But, uh, he, he definitely believed more in a Federalist platform than a Democratic-Republican platform. Yes, um, so, Basically, these these political parties emerged because there was so much debate among some of the issues that we've already mentioned, um, particularly particularly with the economy and how our money would be managed, where it would go, etc. So that's kind of what pushed the creation of these parties, and the two the two main people and you mentioned others in the mix um but 
the two main people that had issues were Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. The, their ideologies clashed so much that it led to the creation of these factions. And like you said earlier, George Washington was not for political parties who did not like them whatsoever. So I don't understand why he kind of let them happen, but he kind of enabled them. He didn't stop them when, once them they were created. So that's kind of something that I've always been wondering, but it's definitely something to consider. I do somewhat disagree with that, though, because I feel like with his cabinet, he tried to put people together that he knew wouldn't agree, where he had um, his, his Secretary of State was uh, Jefferson and his Secretary of the Treasury was Hamilton. And I think the other thing that, you know, you really can't say he caused it, I guess, is because he left office and he died relatively soon after. So he didn't have, you know, while you have Adams and you have, um, obviously Hamilton didn't, but Hamilton was young at the time. You have Adams and Jefferson who would go on to live for another 30 years and kind of see this partisan split happen. Washington, unfortunately, wasn't really around to see the mess occur. Uh, so the next thing we see, so we see, uh, the Federalists are this Northern party, this centralized power party, a lot of government. Uh, and then the direct response to that is the Democratic Republicans. Now, of course, for the modern person in looking at politics, this is a confusing name. We have the Democrats and we have the Republicans. The Democratic Republicans was the starting party for, uh, was, was one party at first, and it was the party that we would eventually come to know as, uh, we're going to deal with this later, as um, Katie was telling me right before we started the podcast, um, we're, what we would look at now, the Democratic Republicans probably resemble the Republicans now, but they, for the long time, the long time before that, they resemble the Democrats. Um, yeah, that's confusing. We will get into it. Yeah, I think, um, so some of the issues that the Democratic Republicans um, opposed, um, they they were more in favor of um, free trade, the promotion of farming over commercial interests, and they supported a friendship with France, which is very in tune to Thomas Jefferson because he spent some time over in France. So his his sort of time in that country had influence on some of the policies of the Democratic Republican Party. Yeah, and basically for the next uh, 30 years, you see this as kind of a uh, stable two-party system where you have Democratic Republicans and Federalists. And then it really gets kind of shaken up when uh, you have the Whig Party come in. Now, uh, the Whig Party is kind of looked at in history as just a direct successor of the Federalists, and it's kind of what it is. It's, it has the whole high society, you know, New York, New England vibe. Uh, it's run by also an Adams. We have John Quincy Adams is the first president known as a Whig. Um, but you get this kind of shakeup where you have in the election of 1824, uh, you have John Quincy Adams against Andrew Jackson. And What's your opinion on this election? Because it really probably is the craziest election in U.S. history. Yes, so there's a lot of controversy surrounding this election because 
John Quincy Adams was not as popular as Andrew Jackson, but he managed to win the election because he made a deal with Henry Clay, who was, I think, Speaker of the House at the time. Yep. Um, he made a deal with Henry Clay, which said, if you, if you support, Henry Clay said, if you support my run for the House of Representatives, if you support my position, I will endorse you for president. And so that, that deal, that they call it the corrupt bargain. So the corrupt bargain that um, Quincy Adams made with, with Henry Clay is what led to his ultimate victory in that election. And it's definitely controversial because there were a lot of people who, who liked Andrew Jackson, which is he eventually gets elected, as you all know. Um, but he, he was known as the great American um, hero of the War of 1812. So he was this strong military presence. He had a lot of accomplishments. So people liked him, but then, but then Quincy Adams, who didn't really have anything in the game, you know, besides his, besides his relatives, he was able to win because he made this, this corrupt, in quotes, deal mm -hmm. with, with the speaker. And yeah. when, at the time, when you put, when the speaker put his support in for the whoever was being elected, that that opinion mattered the most, which is what it made it so corrupt because he made a deal with the person he knew the outcome depended on, you know. And his endorsement still didn't actually win the popular vote where, uh, you know, in 2016, obviously in the U.S., we saw huge outrage because Hillary Clinton didn't uh, win even though she won the popular vote. Uh, John Quincy Adams actually got 31% of the vote, which was significantly less than the percentage Jackson got. I think it was either high 30s or even uh, low 40s. Uh, but, you know, if you have enough pull in Washington at that time, things can happen, you know, mountains can be moved. And then Quincy Adams becomes a one-term president. And then this great American hero, the everyman, Andrew Jackson comes in, which is kind of interesting considering that he was a total rich southerner that owned slaves uh he wasn't really the everyman but that was what he was portrayed as so uh i think you know then you have you have this Whig party and the Whigs are against the democrats at the point at this point because by the time you get to jackson uh <clears throat> it's the democrats the democratic republican name has been dropped uh, but then the antebellum period, uh, or just the 30 years before the war, is probably the most interesting period for political messes and just like changes in power. So do you want to talk about the election of 1836? Um, I'm going to take it in, wait. Yeah, so basically during the 1830s, um, there were groups that came to oppose Jackson um, for reasons of his personality and his politics. Um, and so they united to create the Whig Party, which we talked about. Um, but during the 1830s and the, and the 1840s, the Democrats and the Whigs, they built party organizations throughout the nation. Um, they sought to enlarge their support by eliminating property restrictions and other barriers to voting. And so they, they started removing barriers that you would see in the past that hindered voting, but voting was still limited to white men. And 
that brings us up to the election of 1836. Um, I think you were better suited to talk about that, but I just wanted to give some context leading up to it. Cool. Uh, so I'll, I'll take over with uh, 1836. So basically, 1836, we see this, uh, this Whig, this Whig majority um, being fronted by Henry Clay again. And Henry Clay is going to come up a lot in the early to mid 1800s. Is this man straight up had every position in Washington except for the, the big head honcho president position. But uh, so he would run against Martin Van Buren, who is basically just Jackson 2.0. Uh, Martin Van Buren uh, was just kind of a just kind of a weaker version, I guess you could say. He didn't have the same charisma that Jackson had, but basically the same platform. And then Henry Clay, you start with Henry Clay and this run with the Whig Party, you start to see the collapse of the Whig Party in the same way I'm kind of drawing a parallel currently with what the Democratic Party is doing. So the Democrats in 2020 are 100% what we would call a coalition party, where you have people like Bernie and you have people like Biden and you have people like Elizabeth Warren, and they don't all necessarily get along and they don't all necessarily fit under the same umbrella. So with the Whig party, you start to see the same thing, where you start to see everyone kind of has a slightly differing opinion and the Whigs also know that Jackson has this, or at this point Van Buren, but the, the Jacksonian movement in the country has this charisma and this, you know, we are for, it's this populism, really. We are for the, you know, the everyman that is going to win them elections. And uh, so in 1836, you get Van Buren winning his second term. And, uh, oh wait, actually... Was it only a first term? I could be wrong. I think Van Buren was a, no, Van Buren is a one-term president. Sorry, my bad. Yeah. Van Buren winning his first term, which would be his only term. And then in 1840, you get a totally different Whig party where the Whig candidate was a man named William Henry Harrison. And William Henry Harrison, in every sense of the word, is the Whig version of Andrew Jackson. He was a war hero. He was an older guy. He, they referred to him as like the log cabin candidate. And he ends up winning off of, you know, kind of pulling on that same strategy of we are, you know, gonna be the simple American hero and win the day. And he beats the, uh, he beats Van Buren. But then tragedy strikes. And uh, I think most people kind of know this because William Henry Harrison is known as, you know, the guy that died. Uh, <laughs> Yep. So uh, he dies uh, a month into his presidency after giving a really long speech on his inauguration day. And who takes over is John Tyler, who is a Whig, barely. Uh, he's from Virginia. He um, was on the ticket specifically to get more of the Southern vote. And this is a problem we're going to see with Lincoln. Uh <laughs> <laughs> but um Tyler John Tyler literally he ran on the ticket and William Henry Harrison told him you don't even have to come to Washington with me that was the deal he said you are going to be on my ticket you are going to be my vice president in name and you can live at home for the next four years we're just going to do it but 
then Harrison dies. And there was no precedent at the time for what would happen if a president died. So they just call up Tyler and say, hey, you're kind of the president now. And Tyler is kind of skeptical. He comes to Washington. Henry Clay's in his ear because Henry Clay's the leader of the Whig Party. And Tyler decides to not follow his orders and not follow his lead and kind of go his own way. So that's setting the stage for, uh, do you want to talk about what happens after with like Polk? Um, yeah, so basically what happens with Polk is, and what ultimately leads to the end of the Whig party, um, is there, there's tensions that continue to, well, we're in the anti, we're in the antebellum period now. And so well, we have been for, you know, a, the majority of the years that Sam just talked about, but these tensions continue to increase. Um, and so basically these tensions about slavery, they, they produced sharp divisions within both, um, both parties, but the, the party leaders efforts to develop compromises, um, to, to pull together the North and South, they eventually ended up destroying the Whig party. And so what happens with Polk is you see that this is kind of the beginning of the end of the, the Whig party. Yeah, so basically uh, what's going on at this time, starting in Tyler, going into Polk, coming in with Taylor, is the Mexican-American War. And the Mexican-American War is basically Texas had become its own country, kind of nation, state, whatever you want to call it. And the question was whether or not should we annex Texas. And you have Tyler is playing with this idea. He's thinking about doing it. Clay is like, no, 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 you're not going to do that. Uh, Tyler's, you know, again, kind of being the rebellious guy here. Uh, but then Polk comes in as a Democrat uh, and Polk annexes Texas, takes it over, and that's when you get the Mexican-American War, which is where not only do we get Texas, we get the entire Mexican session, which goes from California all the way up to Oregon, and in 1848, we are confronted with probably the, the biggest problem America, or the biggest dispute America has faced so far, and that is what to do with all of these new states. So you talked a little bit about immigration and a little bit about going west last week, but uh, now we have to talk about the difference between the slave states and the free states and why this is so impactful to parties changing. Um, yeah, so basically the, the divisions that we see are because, like you said, Sam, we didn't know what to do with all of this new, this new territory. And so the the kind of event that that is the climax and result of all of this debate um is the kansas nebraska act of 1854 and so it gave um each western territory the right to decide whether or not to permit slavery and so this is the where the idea of popular sovereignty comes in each state should have a right to to decide what happens to them, whether they support or not support slavery. But
but the problem and issue that comes up is representation in the House of Representatives in, in Congress. The amount of states that you that you have, they they hugely impact representation. And so we have this issue now that increases the the tensions between the North and South because by allowing each state to decide what to do, you're ultimately not knowing which direction this representation could go to. So each state kind of had their own their own ability to decide what happens next. And that made representation something that was unknown, which added an immense amount of tension to, to everything. And so that sort of territory and the problems that came with the territory are the leading causes that led to ultimately the inability for the North and South to compromise. And we all, we all know what happens after that. If, if you want to elaborate, Sam, that's cool. But that's just something that we should also mention. Yeah. So out of the ashes of the Whig Party, which fell apart because of all of this tension, uh, you get the Free Soilers and the Know Nothings. And these are two different parties. The Know Nothings would align themselves with Millard Fillmore, who became the president after um, Zachary Taylor died. Um, and the Know Nothing Party was basically anti-immigration, but anti also anti-compromise of 1850, which compromise of 1850 basically allowed uh, the full enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act, which basically made, made Northerners responsible for returning uh, escaped slaves to the South, which was horrible. And some parties on the quote unquote better side morally still uh, were for this. So you have the Free, so the free Soilers are more okay with the Compromise of 1850 than the Know Nothings, but the Know Nothings are also anti-immigration. So you get a little bit of both negative and positive on both of these parties. And what eventually happens with these parties is they merge with, uh, <clears throat> they merge with anti-slavery Whigs, which would be the Northern Whigs, and become what is known as the Republicans. And the Republicans is the party that we know today. Uh, obviously it's very different from what it is. Uh, but the Republicans is a first party that shows up in the middle of the middle of the 1850s. Abraham Lincoln is one of the big stars. But um, it's important to know that the Republicans love to be like, oh yeah, the party of Lincoln, we're the party of Lincoln. You know, we freed the slaves. Yes, but also even from the no. even from the beginning, the Republicans have a lot of problematic skeletons in their closet. You have, you know, an a very anti-Catholic sentiment. You have a very uh, kind of skittish on slavery sentiment. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to note about that, that people say that, like you said, Abraham Lincoln, the Republican Party is the party that freed the slaves. Ultimately, that is true, but to to say that that was their goal coming out when the party was originally created is not necessarily the case, and we know for a fact that it's not the case because, as you know, going into the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, his one his one goal was to preserve the Union, and the only reason that the Civil War became a war about ending slavery was because that as the war progressed, that was the only that was the only 
topic, and that was the only motivator for pushing the northern soldiers to keep fighting. So we we often refer to the Republican Party, Abraham Lincoln, as the party that ended slavery. And yes, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, but that was not his overarching goal. That was not his goal when he first became president. It was just to keep the country together. So in addition to those skeletons, being skittish about slavery, like you said, was quite literal. It was something that, and it's something that not a lot of people discuss. He's always known as the great emancipator, but there's many different layers to him. Okay, so once we get to the Civil War, uh, there are a few small little partisan things where um, obviously the most radical faction of the Democrats goes on to become the Confederate States of America. So we don't really talk about that because obviously it's not really part of the U.S. Um, But there still does remain a a form of Democrat. And what those Democrats, what what the more liberal, more, not more liberal, what the more uh, Southern faction of people that stayed in but weren't in the Confederacy uh, become the Copperheads. And the Copperheads are basically Lincoln's only opponent in uh, 1864. And you have uh, McClellan, who runs against him. He's a general. uh, And their goal is, we want to end the war. So their goal is, we don't give a shit about how the war ends. We don't care about, you know, slavery. We don't care about states' rights. We just want to end the war. And Lincoln doesn't really have a hard time dispatching them. But in 1860, and even with the Confederacy, you do see a split with the Democrats, where the very famous debates that all high school debates are based on are the Lincoln-Douglas debates. You have Stephen Douglas, who is the Democrat nominee for 1860. But then you have John Breckinridge, who because uh, the, the big split of the Confederacy doesn't happen until after the election is announced and Lincoln is in, you have John Breckinridge, who is vehemently pro-slavery. He is pro-slavery. He's very, very, you know, he, he's very happy to tell you that. Uh, and Douglas, while he is not as pro-slavery, he kind of represents the other half and the more facade-like half, where he is very, very states' rights focused. So you get these three phases where you have free soil mentality where if there's going to be a new state, we want it to be free, but like we don't want to really poke the bear of the South, which is Lincoln. Then you have the we're not going to be outright, you know, we love slavery, but we're also not going to condemn it, which is Douglas. And then you have, and we're also going to support states' rights as our main reason for being democratic. And then you have Breckinridge, who is just straight up out about slavery being his platform. So there, those are the big three of 1860. And that's when you start to see this little breaking up of the Democratic Party that will really hurt them that that 1860 split and then of course the loss of the civil war will really put the democratic party in the ground for the next half a century and then uh do you want to start talking about the reconstruction period Kate? um yeah so with reconstruction came 
a sort of, or came the emergence of the radical Republicans in Congress. And so the reason that they're called radical Republicans is because they, they wanted to see as drastic changes to the former um, members of the Confederacy as possible. So there was a lot of tension in Congress at the time because during Reconstruction, because Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, um, Andrew Johnson comes into play because he's, he was Lincoln's vice president. And so when Andrew Johnson steps into into power or into the presidency, we, we see this clash between the president and Congress. And this was a very, I don't want to say aggressive, but it was aggressive. It was an aggressive clash because, and the reason why it was a clash is because Abraham Lincoln and any president in general, when they pick a vice president, they try to pick someone who is going to appeal to voters outside of their individual um, spectrum of ideology. So Lincoln did this. He chose Andrew Johnson because Johnson, he appealed to the Southern um, Democrat, or he appealed to the Southerners, um, yeah, the Southern Democrats. Um, and he himself, so- He himself was a Democrat for most yes, of the time. Yes, yes. And him being a Democrat, he appealed to that, that Southern Democratic um, ideology, those, that, that party. And so, after Lincoln died, he carried those ideologies into Congress. And the radical Republicans were very against this because they wanted to see as harsh reparations as possible because the Confederate states literally left America and became their own entity, you know. And so we see, we see this clash. And so this leads to Andrew Johnson's impeachment. And Andrew Johnson was impeached because he he basically told um, Ed Edwin Stanton, I think is yeah his Edwin was. Edwin Stanton is the uh, yeah well, his um Secretary of War, which now would be Secretary of Defense. We changed it because propaganda. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so basically, he tried to overextend his power to to do something with. Stanton, I think it was because he didn't agree with his ideologies or something like that. And so he tried to kick him out, basically. And so the, rad the radical Republicans were like, you cannot do that. So because they, they ruled Congress, they impeached him. And so he was impeached. But remember, when you're impeached, you are not necessarily kicked out of office. You're just accused of a crime. Mm -hmm. Anyways, he was impeached. And then he was left in office, but on a very, very thin line. I think it was one or two votes, or yeah, it, was, it was very it was close, close. It was a close vote. What I will, what I will say to clarify is, uh, people who are thinking of modern politics, where you see Trump dismissing a different cabinet member every day, uh, it was illegal at the time. But only going back to those radical Republicans, it was illegal only because they passed a law saying you at this time of you know a war had just ended and reconstruction had to happen uh that you couldn't depose of cabinet members knowing full well that this was lincoln's cabinet so they knew if they had a democratic if they had a, a democrat in the office for the next four years they were like what if we just give him all of his assistants are going to disagree with him on everything so that's what they did 
you have uh, <clears throat> you have uh, Seward, who ended up he went and bought Alaska. That's kind of his famous thing. Uh, you have uh, Stanton, and all of them were Lincoln loyalists. Uh, while Johnson was just there to fill the ticket, and the House and actually just Congress in general really, really played Johnson by knowing that okay, we're just going to trap him in the White House pretty much. And after that, you have again uncontested Republican presidents again and again and again and again until Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Um. So with I don't know if you want to take it in a totally different direction if you want me to elaborate but um with Teddy Roosevelt you see the emergence of sort of a a rediscovery a re he was very progressive he was a very progressive president and so you see these new policies that lead to that lead to what we know today as something that's progressive we see that he he enters things that that you know I don't really know where I'm trying to go here so you want me to try to tag in here yeah yeah I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say but so he was progressive yeah so Teddy Roosevelt is a he's a Republican uh contrary to his cousin who would take office later he's a Republican but he doesn't really subscribe to the rest of the Republican platform so he comes in his big thing is trusts. So obviously he comes in at the height of the Gilded Age where people are making a ton of money. It's very laissez-faire. It's very, you know, self-made. It's the era of the self-made man. Uh, And he comes in and he says, no, we're not doing that. So you get a bunch of kind of, I guess you could say like old style federalist policy of just we're going to come back in with that with that government. And at this point, this is kind of the the last, he's kind of the last Republican to do this because what you get after him is Taft, who is his protege and pretty much just a, 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 I guess when I said Van Buren was the, the weak Jackson, Taft is the weak Roosevelt. So then what happens uh, with Roosevelt, and I guess this is another partisan point we can hit is the creation of the progressive party and the progressive party is probably one of the saddest stories of American political history because you get uh, another three horse race. It's kind of like Breckenridge and it's kind of like uh, Breckenridge and Douglas, where uh, you have this candidate Woodrow Wilson who is not the most popular. You have Woodrow Wilson is an academic from the University of Princeton, uh, and um, he is a Democrat. And Democrats hadn't been popular since before the Civil War. So you have what's prescribed to be a Republican versus Democrat. You have Taft, Taft, who's the incumbent, versus Wilson. But then Teddy Roosevelt, who watched Taft not be as good as he was, says, I can come back. And we had just seen Grover Cleveland do this. So presidents coming back was an established precedent. So he comes in. They split the Republican vote, uh, the Progressive Party for, uh, or the Bull Moose Party for Roosevelt. They split, the, they split the Republican vote, and Wilson ends up winning. And this is the point where I, I believe that you start to see a sliver of the modern party system that we have. 
So do you want to talk about what happens after Wilson? Um, yeah, so basically after Wilson, um, you see this, this sort of shift, like you said, Sam, into a more modern age. And so the, the, direct, the direct shift that we see um, happens in the 1890s with the creation of the Populist Party. And so the Populist Party appealed mainly to small farmers, but it also attracted Western miners and urban workers. And in 1982, the party carried four states in the presidential election and elected governors in eight states. And so then that brings us to the election of 1896. Um, and in 1896, um, the Democrats adopted um, the populist platform and they nominated William Jennings Bryan, who was a Democratic se um, senator who had populist sympathies um, for the presidency. And the Republicans nominated the conservative senator William McKinley. And so in the campaign, Northern and Midwestern business interests made an all out effort to defeat what they saw as a radical threat from the populist democratic alliance, um, but when the, and when the dust settled, the Republicans had won and McKinley became the president. And so in large urban areas, um, workers became convinced that the populist democratic policies would threaten the, the industries that provided their jobs. And so this is kind of the emergence of what we see as a turning point in what we now see as modern parties it's kind of it serves as the bridge and that whole that whole they took our jobs mentality that we see up until today yes so uh if we go back you know we we have wilson now as in party isn't that yeah, we have wilson is in power uh and he's a, he's a democrat and then we see the next you know right after wilson uh who obviously took us through world war one we see kind of another bounce back to conservatism where we have Hoover and we have uh, Coolidge who are just kind of along for the ride uh, of the Roaring Twenties where, you know, business is big and spending is high and credit is running off the charts. And literally it goes off the charts and then that's when we get the markets crashing. And it seems in this country that the pattern over and over and over again is that you have a big, good economy. People are willing to take a chance on a Republican. Like, maybe this is a good time. So they do this, and then they get into a depression. And then in 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt from New York waltzes in as this incredibly charismatic Democrat uh, and promises everything and says, we are going to get out of the depression with, this, with the New Deal. And this is really the, the first Democrat, Democrat that we, or when I say Democrat, I mean like contemporary Democrat we see, where we see Wilson is a Democrat, definitely, but the, the party lines hadn't really been drawn as they are today until you see Roosevelt, where he comes in, he has all of this new policy, he drops a ton of government, a ton of heavy government, which had normally been the, the predecessors of the Republicans, as you have um, 
you know, the Federalists, which were the original, you know, Alexander Hamilton wanting a national bank. But FDR brings in a ton of heavy government, and he is in power forever because people love him, and he doesn't really get any opponents because you can't really argue against getting out of the Depression. Obviously, it takes a while, and World War II is really what gets him out, but because he keeps getting voted in, he gets to take all the credit for that entire 12-year period of time. Yeah, I think something interesting about FDR that is not widely known about is his efforts to stack the court Mm -hmm. um, to make his New Deal legislation, to make all of those those ideologies and all of those plans concrete. He needed judges who would support him, and because Supreme Court judges, they last forever. He wanted to pack, he wanted to pack the court with people who agreed with his ideologies, and I think that that's, that's one thing that is very controversial on FDR's end that he did, Um, but I mean, it got, it got us all of or not all of the programs we know today, obviously, but it got us some of the very important programs that we have that carry into today, like Social Security and all of those, quote, socialists. Yeah. Um, WPA, all that kind of, all those big three-letter word organizations. Yeah. And so, so that kind of, say what you want about FDR. I mean, he did try to pack the court, but he got what he wanted to get done and his policies lasted all the way up until today. Yeah, and FDR's whole getting, this kind of even goes along with packing the court. FDR's policy was, I'm going to give you the most uh, overarching government that you can have uh, and I'm going to push that boundary until people say I can't do it. So you get stuff like the agricultural programs that he tried to push that were declared uh, unconstitutional by the Supreme Court so then he says, what if I just add to the Supreme Court? And obviously, you know, you can't add seats to the nine. So he gets told you can't do that. But because he's so charismatic, he gets voted in again and again and again. And that's all he really needs. So- yeah, and something, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but something that's um, important to note is that the Constitution does not set a limit on how many judges can sit in the Supreme Court. It doesn't actually say nine. And so that's kind of the number that we've settled on, but it, there was, there's nothing written currently in the constitution. And there's also been no amendments that specify the number of judges that can, that can sit on the court. They kind of just decided, Hey, you're picking too many people and and gave backlash. So that's something that's interesting too. It's just, it's not directly written or expressed in the constitution. I will say that's interesting. I actually didn't know that. I think it's it's really cool, interesting to think how many precedents FDR actually set, because yes, Washington had set the the two term president idea, but um, up until 1945, FDR demonstrated perfectly that you could get elected four times, and there's no law against that. After that, they make a law because you don't want someone that is elected four times. Um, and then we get, uh, we get into a position where I think for the next 15 years after FDR, the parties are mostly in their centers, because obviously there are the, there are the radical sides of both with like McCarthyism, but I honestly do think that this is probably the last time that the parties were somewhat similar and agreed on a lot, where you have Truman and Eisenhower who were both 
uh, Eisenhower being a general and Truman being vice president during World War II, they were both very, well, actually, he wasn't, he wasn't vice president during World War II because he, he had just been picked as uh, FDR's, I guess he was vice president for like a very brief amount of time. But um, you get Truman, and these guys are both just kind of older, well, you know, well-worded, experienced presidents. And they, you know, they stand up for what they want to do. Obviously, Truman will forever be famous for one decision he made at the beginning of his presidency. Uh, <laughs> that would be the atomic bomb. But they both had ran out eight-year term, uh, eight terms. And then you start to get back to the partisan program with Kennedy. Uh, do you want to talk about Kennedy or should I start? Um, you can talk about Kennedy. I'm cool with that. All right. So Kennedy's a Democrat. Um, and Kennedy is kind of, as of right now, I think the last, I mean, I guess you could say Obama and Biden, but Kennedy is kind of the last example of going a little too deep on picking, uh, picking your running mate where, uh, John Kennedy picks Lyndon Johnson specifically because he want, needs to win Texas. And many historians will agree that he would not have won Texas against Nixon if he didn't have Lyndon Johnson, who was a Texan, very well-known, very well-liked. Um, and even though Lyndon Johnson is a Democrat at the time, this is we are already starting to see this divide in the Democratic Party where Lyndon Johnson is much, much more closer to the Republican side. And I think it also stems from what I said from that 15 year period of kind of being close to the line where Lyndon Johnson is close to the line and he will be close to the line during his presidency as he is a little bit of a war hawk. So uh, you get Kennedy who brings in this Texan Democrat and obviously Kennedy dies. So it seems like, you know, you see a little bit of a pattern of every time someone makes a mistake by choosing their running mate being a little not agreeing with their platform, they get off. So unfortunately, uh, Kennedy passes away in 63 after getting assassinated. Uh, but you have Lyndon Johnson, who is a Democrat. And then after Lyndon Johnson, in the heat of Vietnam, Tricky Dick. <laughs> Yeah, um, so basically, we, we've been talking about FDR and how he has created the Democratic Party that we know today. Um, Nixon was that, was that figure for the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And so Nixon appealed to white Southerners because he promised to reduce federal support for school integration and voting rights. And so with the help of the independent can um, candidacy of the former in Alabama governor, George Wallace. Nixon sparked the voter shift that eventually gave the once hated, quote, party of Lincoln, a strong position in all of the states of the Confederacy. And so now this is kind of where the Republican Party goes from being a party that once represented the North to a party that represents what we typically consider the American South. And so that's kind of where the geographical shift happens. So like the party's just flipping names, you know? Um, but then after Nixon, you see in the 1980s under Reagan, 
that the Republicans added another group to their coalition, which was religious conservatives who were def- who were offended by um, Democratic support of abortion rights, and as well as democratic democratic disdain for cultural and religious values. And so that's kind of those two presidents originally starting with Nixon and then transitioning eventually into Reagan, you see the Republican Party become what it is. And excluding, I guess, ideology-wise, like we're, we're excluding Donald Trump from this conversation right now, like when we're talking about the Republican Party as it is, because we're in, we're in a point in history where he's changing the face of the Republican Party again. Yeah. So it's like we're in the midst of another huge transition that we can't really talk about because it's still happening. But that aside, um, yeah. But yeah, I think, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate for Gerald Ford. Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, but you have three Republican presidents in that 20-year span, and two of them did something, and then one of them, and when I say did something, I don't mean did something good. I just mean were somewhat effective at doing something. Uh, Gerald Ford, probably the least, probably he's the definition of a lame duck. You know, he was never elected uh, either as a vice president or a president. Uh, he was actually added after Spiro Agnew dropped out. So he wasn't even, he didn't run on a ticket, but he became a president. Um, but then you have, sorry about the little rant there, just Gerald Ford. So... <laughs> <laughs> you have Nixon, you have Reagan, but I think it also is interesting to illustrate that you see this this curve again come back with the the liberal and then the liberal and conservative, where you have in the in the 60s when there's a lot of turmoil going on, you see the liberals, and then Nixon comes back when everything kind of goes away and Vietnam starts to end, but then. Uh, huge inflation hits in the end of the 70s and you have Carter. So Carter is a, is a Democrat, he's a farmer. And I think it's interesting to kind of tag on to what you said about the, uh, the Southern, the kind of like Southern re- religious thing. Carter is kind of the last Democrat to hit that. So you have Carter who wins in 76 and then he gets completely kind of wiped off by this actor Ronald Reagan from California, who had been the governor of California, um, who comes in and there is good economy. There is just a big boom. And we see another with big, with a big boom, another emergence of conservatism. And that brings us into the, the Clinton era, which is, I think, I think if you're going to say Reagan is the modern, is the, the really modern version of the Republican Party, obviously before Trump, which we'll get to, uh, I think Clinton is the, the modern model for what a Democrat should be. Yeah, I'd agree with that statement. I think that, I think that Bill Clinton's biggest controversy was that wasn't even related to politics. It was in his personal life. And a lot, the re, he was impeached for it. Um, for his scandal with um, Monica Lewinsky, but the American people ultimately decided that he, that his personal values, they didn't affect his ability to, to serve, to, also, to serve the office of the presidency. <laughs> what? He also had six months left, which is, I think, another oh, yeah. popular factor. I think, yeah, that's definitely a factor, but even, even so, 
like you've if you look at polls from from that time and during the time that he was impeached if you look at the polls that went out to the american people the huge consensus was that they saw the political or they saw what's quote considered a political scandal as something that was more entertainment which is very interesting to me um and so they kind of viewed that as as something that was separate from his presidency because in a way it is there his personal life is separate from his presidential life and he had six months left so he kind of this is just a rant he, but, got, he just got off he got yeah. off easy and, yeah. and then in comes the the era of fear i want to call it i guess that's kind of what it is because i feel like the last in, in our lifetime which is really where we are now uh, every candidate kind of runs on this platform of fear where you have yes. George Bush runs just because, you know, it's going to be this, this back and they just think of this back and forth where you have Democrats for eight years, Republicans for eight years and he runs. And then literally, you know, less than a year into his inauguration, nine 11 happens and everything changes. You have a Republican party that becomes incredibly energized off of this wave of patriotism started by 9-11 and that's when you start to really see the the patriotism of this country become very 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 partisan um the democrats kind of distance themselves obviously when 9-11 happens there's patriotism on both sides rampant patriotism but the republicans really take that away and keep you know keep that moral for themselves and then you have, you know, this, this white Southern patriotist, uh, yeah, white Southern patriotic Republican Party with, you know, the, the Joe Bidens of the Democrats. And the Democrats really, really emerge as this uh, <clears throat> very, very split party in both 2008, 2012, and then really 2016. So 2008, you see Obama. Uh, who is an up-and-comer from Chicago, and him being Black, obviously, is a factor. Uh, it's different than, you know, a lot of the other people in his party, where you have a lot of old white establishment from the South, like the Clintons. Um, but with Obama, even even Obama is still kind of an old establishment Democrat, where, yes, he is, you know, yes, we can hope but he's also, you know, he's taking, he's taking office, you know, in the middle of a war. He's taking, you know, this, he's incredibly charismatic. He's kind of just like another Roosevelt, in my opinion. Like, he, he's just, a, he's a new modern era Roosevelt that comes in and assures everyone everything's going to be okay. Yeah, I think that, that the, the thing that characterizes the, the political party system today is just the amount of polarization that has hit both political parties and we can see this um characterized by the realignment that began in 1968 which laid the foundation for um the southern democrats and the northeastern republicans to fade and so when those two groups fade you see that there's not really much holding both parties together. They're totally different ideologies. And that's not to say that both parties were similar when those groups were involved, but those groups kind of 
served as the middle of the spectrum. And so when they're removed, there is no more middle to that spectrum. And so now we only have two far, two far ends of a spectrum. And I, I think, I don't know if this is getting too deep into it, but I think that a lot, a lot of people say that, that there are a lot of radical liberals. And while I agree that radical liberals exist, I feel like if we're looking at the real definition of that, they're more, they more lie in, in, in terms of like a moderate, moderate left, you know, they don't really ever go into that like deep, deep left. And the closest person we can see who falls into that category is Bernie Sanders and people who are like him. But even then, that's not, that's not the far left of the spectrum is communism, but they don't fit communism, you know, they fit socialism, which are two very different, mm -hmm. two very different ideologies. Anyways, that was a little tangent, but but that that polarization is something that is kind of destroying the way we the way we view each other in our country and the way we listen to one another. So that's my tangent. I don't know if you want to add to that. You can yeah, no, I totally you can do. leave it as it is. But I totally yeah. do. I would love I'd love to add to that because I think it's really interesting that we have this Republican Party that is relatively unified. I think we're it's fair to say that we're able to talk about modern day right now. I think we have this Republican Party that is fairly unified behind Trump and his platform. And I don't think we have the Democratic Party that does that. It's, it's still very split. You have the Bidens of the world who still probably agree a lot, uh, <coughs> probably agree a lot um, with the Libertarians, even though the Libertarians, uh, we can briefly speak about them. They are the third largest party in the country right now. But uh, basically they are just center in the middle. They believe in Republican economics and they believe in more liberal uh, social, uh, more liberal social uh, policies. But of course, because they're trying to play both sides and no party in the history of the US has ever actually successfully played both sides, they're never gonna get as much support as one of the other two. But I think to go back to um, what I was saying about the Democrats, I think that even though you have these two parties within one party where you have the Bernies and you have the Bidens, I think if you were to split that party, I think Biden would truly become a libertarian. And I think Bernie might even go farther to the right or farther to the left. Um, so I think it's interesting where you have, yes, unity and, you know, unity is preached in the whole patriotic uh, platform where unity definitely does drive a party more and more and more deeper into their values. Uh, and I think the Democrats definitely have that anchor where because there are kind of two or three parties within one, they all are kind of forced to play in the same sandbox. Uh, and we'll see what happens with that, where it does seem like the party is splitting apart and we will see in the next coming, maybe not this election because Biden is the candidate and people are having to rally behind him. But maybe when, by the time we have to get to, you know, a new incumbent, as I don't think Biden is gonna try to be a two-term president, I think uh, 2024 is gonna be a very interesting election to see if we actually still have these two parties. And to kind of wrap up, cause I know we're getting close to the, close to the wire when we have to wrap up. Uh, I do wanna kind of pose the conversation of 
I think this 2020, this next 2024 election is going to be, do you, and I want to know what you think about this. Do you think it's the prime time for the next shift into our next political sphere where I think, you know, we haven't had a, a, a named party change since the Civil War, but do you think we might even get that? I think that, I don't think that it's something that that regular people out in the world really truly think about, but I think that it will be something that eventually happens. And I honestly think that it needs to happen because when you have a party that has two totally different groups of, and they're not totally different. I mean, Democrats, they unite in, in so far as they're very like human rights and all of that. But there's definitely more conservative Democrats and there's more liberal Democrats. And I think that having those two groups makes it difficult to, to distinguish it as a party. You know, I don't think that the Democratic Party really has an identity right now. And if it wants to survive as a party, it needs an identity. So I definitely think that it needs to happen. Will it happen? I guess time will tell. But I mean, the one thing we can agree on is the Republican Party has an identity. You know, they have a strong identity and the Democratic Party needs to do the same thing. Yeah, and the, hopefully, the, hopefully soon, you know? Yeah, I think the Democratic Party's identity right now is anti-Republican, which, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which works uh, as long as you can get everyone to rally behind you, but we will see in November if that occurs. So, uh, you know, maybe in 50 years we'll get together and we'll do an addendum to this. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, okay, uh, Sam. For now, that's our, for now, that's our historical, our uh, historical take on polit political parties in this country starting with 17, 1789 and going all the way to 2020. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Thank you, Katie, again for coming on. Uh, I think it's, you know, pretty easy to say. This is the new normal. We have two co-hosts and I uh, think it works pretty well. So uh, I hope you enjoy doing it. Oh yeah, I do. Thanks again for having me. Um, I always enjoy these conversations. Yeah, I enjoy it too. Uh, okay, I hope you guys have a great week and we will see you next Thursday. Bye.